Welcome to Fertile Minds Radio. Here you'll find wisdom for your fertility journey and beyond, chosen specifically to help you trust your body and elevate your spirit so you can enjoy the process. Join us and see what a fertile mind feels like. Now your host, Hilary Talbot Rowland. This podcast is a proud member of Parents on Demand, a network of high-quality shows for families just like yours. Download our free network app on Apple and Android and listen to your favorite episodes on the go. Hey there, Hillary here, your go-to gal to help you form a plan to reclaim your fertility and create a healthy family for generations to come, all while staying sane along the way. I've got an amazing interview for you today filled with girl talk about the realities of what we as women were actually taught when it comes to how fertile we are when that starts to decline and the ins and outs of our menstrual health. I could have talked to our guests for hours about all things fertility and how to spread the word to women everywhere that birth control for menstrual irregularities doesn't fix anything, nor does it help your fertility in any shape, way, or form. I feel strongly that this is an episode every woman should listen to, whether you are trying to conceive or you're a teenage girl, trying to figure out where your menstrual cycle and potential fertility fit in with your day-to-day life and long-term goals. I'm hopeful that with over 1,000 citations in her book, The Fifth Vital, that this book might actually serve one day as the basis for sex ed in our school system. I know for me, it's filled with things that I wish I had known when I was a teenage girl. Lisa Hendrickson-Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for conception, natural birth control, and monitoring overall health. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing that the menstrual cycle is in fact a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall well-being. Welcome to the show, Lisa. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Congratulations on your book. Uh, It's reached bestseller status already and your podcast success with over a million downloads. Thank you so much. You're welcome. This is a huge achievement, not just for you, but for all of the people that you have educated along the way. How do you feel about all of this? To be honest, it's a little bit, as you can imagine, it's just a little bit strange because for so long I've just been I was, we were talking in the pre-chat, I've had my head down, I've been putting out my podcast episodes for the past two years, I was my head in the research writing the book. So it's almost like I've kind of stuck my head out and looked around. (laughs) And I'm still (laughs) starting to trying to kind of get used to everything. But I, I mean, I am really proud of the accomplishment of writing the book, I think because it was so much work. And because I'm still it's still so new, I am still at the stage of trying to lay back and kind of sit down and enjoy it because I'm still actively trying to get the audiobook done. <laughs> so I'm still in it. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, it, and then the, by the time you're done with it, there'll be a, a new revised edition that needs to come out, right? Isn't that how it works? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Always something. <laughs> Some more research that you found that you need to include. <laughs> there already is. I could list three studies that I wish I had in the book. <laughs> 
Oh, I think that's great. And I think it actually really speaks to our audiences that, you know, those recovering type A are overachievers, right? <laughs> yeah. We, we come by it honestly, so we know they're kind. Yeah, but eventually you have to ship it. Yes. You just have to put it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, congratulations. I know that's no small feat, especially self-publishing and then getting to the top of the Amazon list. That's a big deal. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah. And your podcast, Fertility Fridays, I remember, so, you know, this podcast, I think I was like the little engine that could. It took me three years to like work up the the tech muscle to be like, oh, I can do this. And a hurricane actually is what finally pushed me over the edge to do it. But yours was like, when I first started looking, you were like the only fertility podcast out there. I feel like you're the original. (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I started the podcast It'll be five years in November of 2019. And so I started it quite a while ago. And I remember there was a podcast. Uh, it was I forget what it was called, Fertility Something. There was one other podcast when I started. And I started at an interesting time. There was a lot of podcasters that were emulating John Lee Dumas, <laughs> Entrepreneur <laughs> on Fire. John Lee Dumas has like a team. <laughs> uh, so he was putting out, you know, seven episodes a, a week. He was putting out an episode every day back then. And there was a lot of podcasters that jumped in the ring and were literally putting out either five or seven podcasts a week. So there was a podcast, a fertility podcast, and she did quite well, but she was putting out five episodes a week. And so by the time she hit the six month mark, that was it. She pod faded. But yeah, at that time, I remember just thinking like, you know, no one's talking about this. uh, And I think it's really important. And I'm really curious to see if anybody is also interested in fertility awareness, because I knew it made such a big difference in my life. So I just decided to throw myself in there and just start releasing episodes. So now that I've stuck my head out and looked around, I can't believe how many fertility awareness podcasts there are because I honestly didn't even know (laughs) or just fertility podcasts in general, I should say. I feel like in the last six months, there's been a wellspring of them. It was like spring has sprung and all of a sudden I, here they are, which is great because I feel like there's some, there's someone for everyone, which is why I have other fertility podcasters like yourself on my show because, you know, we need different things at different times, right? Absolutely. It's really nice to see it because it really shows that it just shows how much has changed. It shows that we are making progress because more and more women are discovering how important their menstrual cycles are. And more and more women are talking about how that relates to fertility. So it is a great thing. Right. Which your whole book, The Fifth Vital, that's basically, I f- when we were chatting before we hit record, I, I, and I said it and I mean it, I think that this book is what should be taught from from sex edge classes because I feel like this was really missing when I went through school. I think we're around the same age and I was basically taught, you know, if boy looks at you, sneezes on you, he can get pregnant, here's your birth control. <laughs> yep, pretty much. Yeah. And that's so not the truth. I mean, going to graduate school and I went to University of Florida and I have a degree in science and still was not covered there, you know? nothing bad about the University of Florida, but it still was like amazing to me that I was like, shut the front door. I can only get pregnant five days a month. (laughs) And it was Planned Parenthood who told me that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it just speaks to where we're at. It's just so interesting to think of all the amazing technological advances that are happening in the world and all the incredible research and everything. And yet still your average woman doesn't really understand how her menstrual cycle and her fertility work. And so in my case, I was pretty young when I discovered it. So, you know, my story is a bit unique because I discovered 
all of this information right after high school. So I was in my first year of university. So I was somewhere between the ages of, you know, 18 and 19 when I discovered fertility awareness. And it's been almost 20 years. And honestly, not a lot has changed with regards to the public education system. Like I remember learning just exhaustive detail about my ears and my eyes. <laughs> and I'm not saying it's not important. I mean, it was an important part of biology class, but I've forgotten most of it. And it doesn't help me with my day-to-day -day life in the way that learning about your menstrual cycle can really help you to plan your future, to, to understand how to organize yourself when you're trying to have a baby or when you're thinking about having a baby in the future. I mean, this is really important practical advice and information that women need to know. And it's not just for, for learning's sake, it's a very practical knowledge that we need to have in order to organize our, ourselves and our futures and our how we, how we relate to our sexual partners. It's just crazy that we're not taught. I use it to organize my calendar because I, you know, all the herbs in the world don't, still don't change the fact that I am like a different person at ovulation as the day before my period, right? <laughs> this is true. You know, <laughs> like if somebody had just pulled me aside when I was a teenager and, and pointed that out or like, hey, you're not going to feel like running five miles at this point in your cycle. That's okay. Do it at the beginning. I think I would have been a lot less hard on myself. Well, it seems like the education that we receive as young women, I think of it as um, it's like they're trying to prevent us from accidentally bleeding in the classroom. So they teach us just enough to know, because to, I remember when I was, I don't remember how old, but at some point in junior high school, they took girls specifically. So they took us out of the class and they put us in a room, a small room. And it, I remember it was really funny because it was one of our classmates, his mom that was doing it. So it seemed kind of random because I don't think she was a teacher. I don't even know what she was. But anyways, so she was in the room and I remember she pulled out all these different pads and we basically had an education of how to like, you know, stop it up, like to prevent us from bleeding all over the place. And so in a, in a sense, it's like they're trying, it felt like it was very practical for them to make sure that we knew what to do um, when we started bleeding. But beyond that, there was no actual education, no empowerment, nothing about it being, you know, a healthy and normal part of growing up and it being positive thing, it, it really felt like it was, you know, you're going to be bleeding now and you need to just figure this out and you can get pregnant any day of your cycle, which is a myth, but that's what we were taught. And so you need to figure out birth control. I was a child of the 80s and 90s. So they also told us that if we had sex, we would get AIDS and die. So we were going to get pregnant, we were going to get AIDS and die and we needed to use pads. And that was literally what I took out of my education. I had a similar one, only we were pulled into a portable with a teacher and she had a um, like a big vase of water and she literally opened up a tampon and put the tampon in. And so you could see it, you know, like go from this tiny thing into this big thing, which I was, of course, horrified by because I, you know, I didn't know what my actual inside of my vagina was like at that point. I was like, wait, where does that go? Like, how? <laughs> you know, she was just, you know, the take home message was take the cardboard out. I was like, oh my gosh. What? <laughs> I remember as a little girl, because I didn't get it either. And I, I remember I needed to. So when I first started menstruating, um, it's just like TMI, but here we are. I used pads because I didn't even have an understanding of where the vagina was, like in a very literal sense. And I remember having to, we were grad, I was graduating from grade nine or something like that. And we had to, we were going on a trip that involved swimming. <laughs> and so I need to, to figure out how to put, use a tampon and immediately. And so I'm holding, you know, the insert and I'm looking at what it's showing me and I'm trying to figure out where it goes. 
And so somehow I figured it out. The first time wasn't very comfortable because I didn't put it in far enough. But I remember at some point asking my mom, I'm like, mom, is that where babies come out? Is that where the penis goes? And she was kind of like, yeah. And I was 14. I just feel like those are all the examples of, I mean, this is something that could be rectified with education. (laughs) Right. And I, you know, yes, this is probably TMI. If If you've turned on this podcast, like here you are in the deep end swimming around. But if you listen to my podcast, you know that that's what happens. But it's important because this is so normal. Like there's probably, I would say nine out of 10 people listening going, yep, had a very similar experience to that. So at least that's what I get in my office when we stumble upon this conversation at some point. It's scary. And it's even scarier is the point that your book illuminates that is not talked about, which is that ovulation is actually a marker of your health. And that that's really important. And no one really thinks about it that way. They just are trying to suppress ovulation so that they don't get pregnant and ruin their education, right? I think that that's changing, hopefully. But in the last five years, there's been kind of this movement in men's health and fertility to look at a sperm analysis. And in a healthy, you know, 20 to 30 year old male, if you see sharp decline in any of the parameters to go, hey, this could be a biomarker for your health, like what else is going on? But that's not really happening with ovulation, even though we have these staggering numbers of PCOS. Why do you think that that is? Well, I think that we live in a culture that doesn't look at menstruation in a positive way, really looks at it as, I mean, as women, we, uh, I can speak for myself and most of the women that I've known in my life, menstruation is, is often thought of as a hassle. And it's a lot of the, the negative symptoms that many women experience with menstruation, you know, such as painful periods or for women who suffer from PMS symptoms that are pretty significant approaching their period we're kind of taught that that's normal and we should expect our periods to be painful and we should expect to have mood issues and stuff like that before. And so the whole conversation around periods is that they're just generally a hassle and unpleasant. And then, you know, add to that, that the way that our culture currently treats periods and menstruation is that it's really only relevant to have a menstrual cycle when you're actively trying to get pregnant. And when you're not actively trying to get pregnant, it's not really thought of as being important at all. And when I talk about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, I always end up talking a little bit about hormonal birth control or a lot about hormonal birth control because there's a lot of myths about the menstrual cycle that have just allowed for all issues with the menstrual cycle to be addressed with hormonal birth control. So I think first and foremost, if we were to look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign and recognize that as women, a menstrual cycle is is not only relevant, having healthy ovulatory menstrual cycles is not only relevant when you're trying to have babies, then the the whole world and the way that we look at the menstrual cycle would be different. And one of the analogies that I use when I'm talking about this is that, you know, if you and I, or if you or I were to buy a car, if I go to the dealership, (laughs) you know, I can choose to put AC in the car or I could choose not to put AC in the car. But if, you know, whether or not the the car has air conditioning, the engine's still going to function because the car is a machine (laughs) and these parts are made separately. So you can choose to have it or not, and it doesn't affect the way the car functions. But it seems as though with women in our menstrual cycles, we're not machines, but that's kind of how we look at it. And with birth control, what the pill and most other types of hormonal birth control do is it shuts down ovulation. It essentially prevents you from ovulating and prevents you from having a cycle. So instead of having an actual menstrual cycle, you're shutting down your menstrual cycle and instead replacing it with this fake 
withdrawal bleed that happens every 28 days when you either, you know, take your sugar pills or stop taking the pill for those couple of days or pull out the ring or take off the patch or whatever the case is. And so, you know, this, this whole process of thinking that we can just shut down ovulation and shut off the menstrual cycle if we're not trying to have a baby and it's not going to have an impact on the rest of our body. I, I think that that's why I think that we've lost touch with that. One of the things that I found when I was researching uh, for the book, especially researching the side effects of hormonal birth control, was that, you know, the literature systematically downplays the side effects. And I've interviewed a number of doctors over the years. And in medical school, from what I've learned from doctors, like from their own experiences when they're sharing what they learned in medical school, is that a lot of the side effects that women experience the most, so, you know, depression, low libido, painful sex, nutrient deficiencies, anxiety, and I mean, that's just a partial list. Those are not necessarily the side effects that doctors are abreast of and taught in great degree. They're more taught about the life-threatening side effects and also in a specific way. So in one of my interviews with the doctor, she was, you know, letting me know that when she was learning about the increased risk of thrombosis and stroke, it was more so if a woman's over 35 and she's smoking, she's at a much more increased risk. And then you would prescribe a different type of hormonal birth control versus understanding that the risk is higher across the board. And also there's these additional risk factors, if, if you know what I mean. If you think of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign and you recognize that it's a part of a woman's physiology and you recognize that the menstrual cycle is where we're producing our hormones, estrogen and progesterone. And if you can appreciate that we have a circulatory system and those hormones don't just stay in our reproductive organs and we have receptors for these hormones in our brain and our breast and our bones and throughout our whole body, then you can appreciate how shutting down the menstrual cycle and replacing it with synthetic hormones could have all of these far-reaching effects far outside of our ability to reproduce. It's like only then will we really start to appreciate the menstrual cycle as a healthy, normal part of just female anatomy and as a, men- as a vital sign, essentially, um, for women. It's just crazy to think that we could imagine that we could just shut it down and it would have no effect on any other part of our bodies. Right. Can you imagine if there was a pill that you could give men that would just stop their testosterone or give them fake testosterone so that they didn't make viable sperm? Well, they tried to do that. Right. <laughs> it didn't get past like human testing, right? Well, I mean, there was one point in, in the, the book where I talked about all these different side effects for hormonal birth control. It went into a lot of depth. So the depression, the anxiety, like the low libido, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then I posed the question like, well, would the same side effects be completely tolerated and considered to be okay if men had them. And there was a study that was done with uh, over 300 male participants. And it was like a injectable contraceptive, so similar to say Depo-Provera or something like that. And in that study, I mean, they gave the men the, the injectable and it did, you know, lower testosterone, it, it lowered testosterone and it prevented sperm development. So it, it effectively, it worked, it was effective. But the men in the study <laughs> just developed the, the mirror symptoms that women develop when you put women on hormonal birth control. So depression, libido, erectile issues, anxiety, just all of the same types of symptoms that women develop. But, you know, contrary to what happened with the pill being passed and is now available for women everywhere, uh, you know, they stopped the study early and right. <laughs> it's crazy. They had a safety committee and they literally stopped the study early because they determined that 
the risk was, it just didn't outweigh the benefits. It was just like, oh my goodness, look at all these side effects that these men are experiencing. This is just too dangerous. Yet women still, all of the, all of the hormones are available for women to this day. Women still have the same effects and no safety committee has ever stepped in to say that it was too dangerous for them. Exactly. Well, that's because those are the, those are the symptoms that women are most just kind of shoved off about in a doctor's office or said that it's all in their head, right? The anxiety, depression, fatigue, bloating, all of that has, has historically been dismissed. And most women, I think most women have to go to the doctor something like nine times with those symptoms before someone actually addresses them and starts to do proper testing, which is kind of how it's always been expected. And if you look at like the origin of the words of hysteria in Chinese medicine, it breaks down into uterine hysteria and that you could only have that if you were, if you had a uterus. Well, and they used to take it out. Right. I mean, hysterectomy, hysteria. So they would yes. literally take it out because it was the, the root of all your problems, right? Yeah. Well, so one of, in our pre-chat, because we're very chatty, but in our pre-chat, we were talking about, I was sharing some of just what I discovered as I was doing the research and how I interpreted, sometimes I would look at the research paper, look at the data and interpret it a bit differently than how the research, the, the conclusions that the researchers came to. There was one study that I found when I was looking at birth control and side effects, and it was particularly disturbing because first and foremost, the objective of the study was to determine the characteristics of the women who <laughs> complained about birth control side effects. So like right off the bat, you have me on the defensive because I'm already taking issue with the fact that out of everything you could study, you're going to study that. So we're not going to look at the issues with birth control. We're not going to try to, you know, look at the complaints that women have and try to understand and listen to them. But we're actually going to look at that women who complain and we're going to try to figure out their characteristics. And so in this particular study, what they found was, I believe it was over half of the women had mood side effects and a significant percentage of the women in the study had sexual side effects. So right off the bat, 50% of the, <laughs> 50% of the women had mood effects. And I, I believe it was around 30% had sexual side effects. And sexual side effects include low libido, whether you notice that you have a decreased sensitivity, so sex feels less intense or you're either not orgasming anymore or your orgasms are less intense. But, you know, all of those fall under the umbrella of sexual side effects. And the conclusion that the researcher came to at the end of this study was that it is difficult for doctors to counsel women about the most effective methods of birth control and also advise them about all of the risks and side effects without discouraging them to use it. So basically, the researchers saying the clinicians have a really hard time being honest with women about the side effects without discouraging them from using it. And I'm thinking, like, I'm reading the study, and I'm looking at all of this stuff. And so I'm looking at it differently. I'm saying, whoa, 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 half of the women are having mood effects, like 30% of the women are having sexual side effects, and no one's saying maybe there's something wrong with the pill, and maybe we shouldn't prescribe it, or maybe we should look at the formulation after 60 years and see if we can come up with something better. <laughs> no, we're saying that, you know, we're empathizing with the clinicians and saying, oh my goodness, this is so hard for them. Because basically what they're saying is like, and this is what is demonstrated in the lived experiences of women who have experienced menstrual cycle issues and who have been prescribed the pill for doctors. Many, if not most doctors are, you know, the, the risks and side effects are, are heavily downplayed 
and women are encouraged to use the birth control because it's effective. And what's highlighted in the research is how effective it is. And when you read the research, the side effects are systematically downplayed. And then when you speak to women, the lived experiences of women. So for example, if a woman starts using birth control and she starts feeling depressed, or if a woman starts using birth control and she starts developing recurrent yeast infections, while Often she's put on antidepressants or, you know, for women who start developing recurrent yeast infections, often they're just given antifungals and then they get bacterial vaginosis and then they're given antibacterials and it goes back and forth. No one's really asking, putting it two and two together and saying, could these effects be related to hormonal birth control? And maybe we should go off of it for a couple of months before we put you on antidepressants because we know women uh, are at a higher risk of depression when they're taking these hormones. Uh, so let's just see if it could be that. You know, these are the conversations that are not happening. Right. Even though there's, you know, thousands of studies to look at the astrobolome in the GI and how that affects detoxification, <laughs> your entire hormonal system by way of the circulatory system uh, and your nervous system and mood and neurotransmitters, because there's a direct link between the gut and the brain. And it's crazy to me that that's not put together because it seems very obvious, right? <laughs> Mm -hmm. Well, and for instance, the link to depression, it's very interesting because there's a couple of different ways that the pill can increase a woman's chance of becoming depressed. And so one of those ways is the reduction in testosterone. And often when I'm talking about hormonal birth control, you know, I, of course, I come off as like super anti-pill. And there's women who have used birth control and did not have a negative experience because every woman's experience of it is different. So I often get women saying to me, well, I never had any side effects. I was completely fine. But what we need to understand is first, we need to understand how it works. So when, you know, initially I said, you know, the pill sh stops ovulation. So the majority of hormonal birth control methods stop ovulation, at least to some degree. And if you understand um, reproductive anatomy, <laughs> then you'll recognize that our ovaries produce estrogen as we approach ovulation. And then after ovulation, we produce progesterone for the second half of the cycle. So when you prevent ovulation from happening, you're dramatically reducing the natural production of our own body's natural estrogen and progesterone. When we're not ovulating, we're really not producing significant amounts of these hormones. And our ovaries also produce some degree of testosterone. And so one of the ways that um, the pill affects mood and libido and, you know, different types of sexual function is by reducing testosterone significantly. And in addition to that, when women are on birth control, they're producing, you know, anywhere from 200 to 400 times the amount of a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. And so basically the, you know, I like analogies. So I use the analogy of a, a magnet and iron filings and SHBG is a protein that it attaches and binds to testosterone and other hormones. And so when you have this significant increase in this, this um, protein, then it takes a lot of the testosterone, the free testosterone off the market. So all of the testosterone that binds to it is no longer available to our cells. So what you have is you have women who are on it who have significantly less free testosterone, you know, less than half of the free testosterone that a woman has when she's not on it. So even if a woman experiences that differently and she doesn't notice any overt side effects, it's important to know that every woman who takes hormonal birth control does experience, you know, if it didn't shut down ovulation, if it didn't prevent you from getting pregnant, it wouldn't work. So to say that only some women experience effects, well, how that plays out is different in different women. Not all women are going to go on to develop severe depression. Not all women are going to have anxiety and panic attacks. Not all women are going to have um, painful sex or a significant loss of libido. But what we know about 
female libido is that testosterone is really important to that. And so that's one of the ways. And also low testosterone is associated with an increased risk of depression. But in addition to that, you know, the pill is associated with a significant amount of nutrient deficiencies. So there's a plethora, particularly B vitamins, vitamin B12 and vitamin B6, for example. And with vitamin B6, women who are taking birth control, it increases our requirement for it just so much. Um, There's studies that show that you would have to take anywhere from 20 to almost 40 times the the recommended daily allowance to, to, (laughs) to offset how much is being lost. And vitamin B6 is plays a crucial role in the way that we metabolize tryptophan, which is important for our serotonin production. So there's this these two different specific links to an increased risk of depression with the pill that are quite pronounced. Right. And then, then, I mean, I even had that experience in college. I think I was on birth control twice for 90 days. And by the end of it, I was, the side effects were so great. I would take myself off and everything you're talking about, yeast infections, fatigue and lethargy, no desire to do anything, which is like low testosterone weight gain. My breasts would actually swell an entire cup size and shrink in one month. It was so painful. You know, and again, like no one, none of the doctors, they were like, oh, it looks like you just need an antidepressant. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) You want to give me a birth control, antibiotics, and now an antidepressant. (laughs) I think I'm going to go to an acupuncturist. That's exactly what I did. (laughs) And it's, it solves so much, but Yeah, of course, if you take out this, if you basically are taking out one of the major systems of the body, it's, you can't expect that the other systems are not going to work as well. And, you know, depression is a huge thing in our society because of not only synthetic hormones, but food playing a role in that as well. So I feel like it's really important to educate women of, you know, what the possible side effects are to going on birth control. Which brings me to my next question of how do you think long-term birth control use affects your fertility in the future? Because that's a conversation that no provider ever had with me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, for that question, I took to the research because it would be, it would be so nice to just throw the pill under the bus and, and you know have evidence to show that the pill has these far-reaching impacts on fertility. But what I found in the research is that Hormonal birth control is associated with a temporary delay in the return of your normal fertility. And so I didn't find any evidence to show that it's permanent. There's some effects that do last longer than others, but um, there's different ways that it there's different ways that this is shown in the research. Some of the studies will look at the menstrual cycle specifically, and they'll look at menstrual cycle parameters of women who are coming off birth control. So in one study, they looked at the, basically they took a group of women who had never used hormonal birth control and they looked at their menstrual cycle. So they're measuring the parameters, the total length, they're measuring the length of the first half, you know, when ovulation is happening in the cycle, and they're measuring how long between ovulation and the next period. So really breaking down the cycle parameters. And then of course, the second group were women who had just come off of hormonal birth control. And so in that particular study, on average, it took anywhere from nine to 12 menstrual cycles before the group of women who had just come off hormonal birth control, before their cycles looked roughly the same as the women who had never used birth control. And when I say nine to 12 menstrual cycles, that's not the same as nine to 12 months, because what the study also shows is that when women come off of birth control, typically the first couple cycles are often, on average, they are longer because ovulation is delayed. And so any woman who's come off of birth control might know that, you know, the first period, it can come back right away, or it can take a couple of months to come back. 
So nine to 12 menstrual cycles is more like 12 to 18 months before the, just the menstrual cycle is back to normal. So we're talking about ovulation happening, you know, at a normal time, the menstrual cycle being a normal range, which would fall somewhere between 24 to 35 days or so. And the second half of the cycle from ovulation to the next period, which is called the luteal phase, being about 12 to 14 days. So quite typically when women come off birth control, that period of time is a lot uh, shorter so it wouldn't be uncommon for it to be, you know, eight days or nine days between ovulation to your period. And when you're trying to get pregnant, that makes it more difficult because then you're having your period start when the egg is supposed to be implanting for women who are trying to get pregnant. Right. You need that minimum 10-day luteal cycle. Yeah. And 10 is still short. Right. So 10, <laughs> so optimal is more like 12 to 14 and 10, although it's possible to, to conceive because, I mean, we are very resilient as human beings. Um, yeah, it's still not optimal. And then there's a different other studies that look at the time to pregnancy. So there's a number of, you know, time to pregnancy studies where, again, they take a group of women who are not using hormonal methods, so they're not using birth hormonal birth control, and compare them to women who are coming off of different types of birth control to identify if there's a difference in how long it takes them to conceive when they start trying. And so for a, you know, a healthy couple, the woman was not on birth control. On average, she's got about a 25% chance of conceiving in any cycle. So for the, uh, you know, in a couple of the studies I was looking at, on average, it would take about four months. And this is for a couple that's using condoms or some other type of non-hormonal method. And then for couples that are using birth control, it depends on a couple things. It depends on the type of birth control they're using and how long they've used it. So in one of the studies I looked at, they define long-term as two years or more. And you and I both know that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> women are using birth control, yeah, sometimes for two years, but sometimes five and 10 and 15 and 20 years. So the, the women who fell into the long-term use category typically took a little bit longer for pregnancy to occur. So the birth control pill, for example, took about twice as long. So on average, it took about eight months to get pregnant after they came off versus women who weren't using anything, which took an average of four months. And an average means that some women did get pregnant sooner, but other women, it took them longer. And I think that's important to point out because, you know, we all know that some women get come off the pill and they get pregnant right away. But statistically speaking, and based on what the research says, the hormonal birth control is associated with this temporary period of subfertility where it's harder to get pregnant. And then, you know, other birth control methods. So for instance, the shot was the worst offender uh, on average, taking about 18 months for time to pregnancy. So a year and a half on average. And so, and you know, other birth control methods kind of fall in between. And so I think that I first and foremost, one of my main points in sharing this information, it's not to say that no one should ever use birth control because I, I mean, I used birth control when I was a teenager. I had really heavy, painful periods and I specifically went to the doctor to ask for birth control because I didn't know how else to manage it. And I was really active in sports and things like that. So I think that ultimately we as women need to have informed consent. And what that means is we need to be fully abreast of the side effects associated with any type of medication that we're taking. And we also need to know the effects on fertility, because I believe that if we have this information, we're going to fall into three categories. Some women are going to hear about the side effects and be really freaked out and say, you know, that's just not for me, and they won't use it. Some women will use it and knowing the side effects, but at least then they have the, you know, okay, if you know that it could be associated with depression or low libido or painful sex or nutrient deficiencies or whatever the case is, then if you experience some of those symptoms, instead of 
having to endure them for years and then eventually take to Google to find out if it could be related to your birth control, which is what often happens, you could kind of identify that right away. And, oh, you know, I remember someone told me that I, yeast infections, I could get that if I go on the pill. Let me see if, you know, if I go off of it, if that might stop. So some women would still take it, but maybe they would modify their use of it. Maybe they wouldn't go on it for as long. Maybe they would learn that, you know, there is this temporary delay in the return of fertility and then come off of it earlier so that they would have a buffer period before they're really actively trying to conceive. Um, and then some women would use it for just as long. But I think at the end of the day, what what is really important is for us to be able to make those decisions. Because especially the, the effect on fertility, the way that the world is right now is a lot of us as women, I mean, we're, we're trying to figure out our, our way. We're trying to be responsible. We're getting higher educations, trying to get our careers in order. And often it's taking us a lot longer before we're ready to start our families. So if you've waited 10, 15 years to have kids, then when you're ready to have kids, you want to have kids now. And it's, it flips, the switch flips immediately. I don't know if you've experienced this personally or if you've experienced this with your clients, but as women, that, that kind of primal desire to have a child, you could be for years not ready, but then when the, you know, the situation changes, you could from one month to the next be not ready and then ready. And if you don't know that when you come off the pill, there's a period of subfertility that typically lasts for six to 12 to 18 months or more, then you're not incorporating that into your time frame, not to mention the fact that you're probably in your early to mid thirties. Right. And your natural fertility has started to diminish at age 27 if you are in perfect health, right? Never mind if you have any issues with insulin or other hormonal factors or toxicity like exposure to excessive xenoestrogens, which all of us get. And someone like me is saying, that so my recommendation based on what the research says is that for women who are wanting to conceive in the future it would be a good idea to come off of birth control at least 18 months to two years ahead of time especially for women that were put on the pill for specific problems with their cycle so for women that were specifically put on the pill because their cycles were irregular an irregular cycle so again back to the whole menstrual cycle as a vital sign concept What that means is that your menstrual cycle is a reflection of your overall health. And that's why we can consider it a vital sign. So when we have a sense of what is normal in the menstrual cycle, what a normal cycle should look like, if you have a woman who's experiencing, you know, cycles that are sometimes 42 days and sometimes 25 days and kind of going back and forth, but really irregular outside of the normal range, when you have women with excruciatingly painful periods that are just so ridiculous that she can't function without significant drugs, all of these are a sign because that's outside of the normal range. And the menstrual cycle is one of the ways that your body basically illustrates what's happening. So when women are put on the pill, to be clear, the pill doesn't regulate the cycle and it doesn't help treat, cure, or fix anything. What it does is it stops your normal cycle and replaces it with a fake one. It gives you a fake bleed every 28 days to make everybody feel better, but it doesn't address or cure or fix anything. So when you take it, the issue that was causing those cycle irregularities is still there. And now you've just turned off your alarm. So if <laughs> and I'm full of the analogies, but one another analogy that I use is like if you had a grease fire burning in your kitchen and your fire alarm started going off, you're not going to like take out the batteries or put a piece of tape over it and then sit down and watch TV. 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> with the fire burning. But that's what that's how the medical establishment addresses women's health issues. Because when we don't look at the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, then when these issues are happening, and we've got these irregular cycles, or, you know, ridiculous pain, or whatever the case is, we're not looking at that as a vital sign, we're literally just shutting off the alarm, we're taking out the batteries. So then, you know, Fast forward 10 years, you come off the pill. Well, if you went on it for those cycle problems, you're more likely to experience a delay in just having your period come back. And when it does come back, I mean, you haven't fixed what was wrong. So you're likely to still have the irregular, strange, outside of the norm periods. And now you also want to get pregnant. And so what's one thing that's interesting as well, just to note in the research, is that when they... Because it would be so nice and convenient to be like, oh, the pill causes those problems. But that's not what the research indicates. Uh, When they do research studies, some of the studies, they will specifically exclude women that had cycle irregularities beforehand. Because the researchers know that if a woman had cycle irregularities, that they're more likely to to continue to have those post-pill. Right. So that study in and of itself is not not looking at the normal population. I, I suppose one of the things that they're trying to do is say, hey, the pill isn't causing your period problems. And they're right in that sense. (laughs) Right, they are, but... (laughs) So if a woman comes off, so like, let's say post-pill amenorrhea, for example, if a woman comes off the pill and doesn't get her period for three years or four years, and I did, I have interviewed um, at least two women on my podcast that had an experience similar to that, where they came off the pill and literally their period didn't come back for four months. The pill didn't actually cause that though. So in that situation, the woman had an issue with her periods But because she was on the pill and she was getting her fake bleed every 28 days, she didn't know. Right. I mean, and that's really common in my practice too. And I ask about history of birth control use and I'll ask, that's my number one question is why were you prescribed birth control? And it's staggering how many women will say, I don't know. I can't quite remember. I think that that, I think that I was having painful periods or they were really irregular. Maybe, you know, like there, it was such a hazy time because a lot of them were 14, 15, 16 years old. Right. And now they're 40 and wanting to get pregnant. And you know, a lot of time has lapsed since then. And you've, ha- you've been having normal periods this whole time. And you may not actually remember why you sought out the pill. Well, and I would say you haven't been having normal periods this whole time. You've been having right, your regular <laughs> withdrawal bleed every time. And so then when someone like me says something like, well, I would recommend 18 months to two years coming off the pill before you're ready to have babies. This is why the education piece is so important because when you're all, you know, when you're 35 and you've been on the pill for 15 years, like you don't have two years, <laughs> but your body still might need it. And that's the whole challenge. To paint the picture, because I think you and I both know, and you know, the listeners already know what happens in real life. What happens in real life is that, you know, a woman goes off the pill, and we have all been taught collectively. I've I've met very few women that were given a proper education. So the majority of us were taught that incorrectly that we could get pregnant on every day of our cycles. And for me, that caused like a significant degree of terror. So when yeah. I was <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> when I was, you know, like 17 or 18 or whatever, and I was taught this stuff in, in high school and things like that, or junior high, I literally came out of that, those uh, sex ed classes of believing that if I, it's what you said, if someone looks at you or sneezes on you, but I literally believed that ev- if I ever had sex with anybody ever, I would actually be pregnant already that day. Right. <laughs> yes. And it was a sure thing, right? Yep. So pregnant immediately. And so for me, I, you know, I took that terror with me and a lot of us take that terror with us throughout our lives. So by the time we're 29, 
you know, 31. We are still just as terrified as we were when we were 14. Right. Which is, there's a study that shows that when a woman is trying to conceive, when she has three failed cycles, not IVF cycles, three failed menstrual cycles of getting pregnant, mentally, emotionally, she thinks something is wrong with her body because of this belief, right? (laughs) That's exactly where I'm going with this. Because I mean, what this is why where the education piece is important, because, you know, the 31 year old woman who's just as terrified, who thinks if she goes off the pill, she's going to get pregnant immediately, which can happen. But I mean, it, it's, it's not always what happens. And you don't know if which one is going to be you. You don't know if you're going to be the one that gets pregnant right away or if it's going to take you a year. You just don't know. And so what really happens is that, you know, women are cool for like a month. We're all good. You know what I mean? Like all of us are cool for one month. So we come off the pill and we start trying, we get our period, like, you know, assuming that the period comes back post pill pretty quickly, but you try, you know, you get your period and you're like, okay, that's fine. You know, we just started trying. It's all good. Second cycle comes around, you have sex or whatever, you get your period. You're still like, you're, you're freaking out a little bit already, but you're still kind of like, okay, that's all right. That's, that's okay. You know? I'll get it next time. But this is coming from, again, the, the lack of education about fertility in general, not even knowing the 25% that an average healthy couple takes an average of four cycles to conceive. And that's with um, fertility-focused intercourse that is timed correctly. <laughs> Which is another piece of education that is sorely lacking. Right? Yes. So by the time we hit cycle three, we're already losing it. Even cycle two, we're already freaked out. And so what the research tells us is that the pill it temporarily reduces our fertility and it takes our body some time to bounce back. And if anyone needs a literal example of why this is, one of the things that I found in the research was that the pill shrinks the ovaries by 50% or more, and it reduces a woman's ovarian reserve parameters. So any woman who's been trying to get pregnant will know that, you know, if you go for a full fertility assessment, they're going to test your anti-malarial, malarian hormone levels, AMH, which is a measure, it's, it's kind of like an indirect measure of how they determine your, in a way, your ovarian age. But really that test shows how likely the IVF is going to work uh, because it's an indirect measure of how many follicles that you have. And so they're also looking at antral follicle count and then ovarian volume. So hormonal birth control shrinks the ovaries, literally. It shrinks, it reduces the ovarian volume and it suppresses these ovarian reserve parameters. And what the research shows is that about six to seven months after a woman comes off birth control, that's when those ovarian reserve parameters start to normalize. And so there's like a literal physical component to this. What this means is that there's an established delay and we need to know about it so that we can come off of birth control, give ourselves a buffer period. So coming off when we're still actively avoiding. So I'm saying come off when you are not like literally you're still terrified of getting pregnant. It's not a good time for you to get pregnant, but you know next year you want to get pregnant. That's when you come off and you find a different way to manage your fertility in the meantime to allow your body to just bounce back and, and get what it, you know, your ovaries to normalize, your ovarian reserve parameters to normalize, your hormones to normalize, your menstrual cycle to normalize, the nutrient deficiencies that you built up over all those years that you were taking birth control to allow yourself time to build those up and to properly prepare your body for pregnancy by really replenishing, restoring, you know, eating well, all of those types of things. But if we don't even know that, and if we don't, if we're, if our doctors and our providers aren't even telling us about this, then we have no idea. And by the time the 12-month post-pill 
hits. So by the time we've been off of it for 12 months or 18 months, and our body is finally starting to normalize, we're already getting IUI and IVF. And you know what I find fascinating too, is that the pill has this ability to drive you towards insulin resistance or metabolic syndrome. So that already puts you at a deficit in terms of your hormonal balance, but then also you, in what you're going to pass down. So if you have a girl, you have a likely chance of having a girl that then has PCOS if you have insulin resistance or gestational diabetes. If you already had some degree of insulin resistance, which is a hallmark of PCOS, and that's mm-hmm. part of the reason that your cycles were irregular, and that's part of the reason why you were put on birth control, and then that continues to make it worse, and then that condition's allowed to go on the background. I mean, it's just layers and layers of craziness that needs to be stopped. Yeah, and I, and, I, and this is, we're, we're not trying to be doomsday, right? Like, birth control <laughs> no, has no, its no. place for sure, but, you know, I think that these are the, you know, the pieces that are missing, and then also in terms of looking at the overall health of humanity, you know, a lot of women don't understand that you were actually at one point as a germ cell carried in your grandmother's womb, Right in your mother's eggs, because all her eggs were in there. And so those genetic copies are passed down two generations at a time. That's why you see such huge implications around things like insulin resistance that line up with changes in food and changes in pharmaceuticals, specifically birth control. And at that rate, you see higher and higher levels of chronic disease where it's literally not your fault that it happened, right? <laughs> this happened before you were even thought of being a conception. And that part blows my mind of like, why didn't somebody tell me this earlier? Well, I, I agree with what you said. This isn't about doomsday. It's not about trying to, to say anything negative, uh, really, because for me, it's always just about the education piece. It's about becoming informed. Know that the body is really resilient. You know, I've been talking a lot about some of the side effects of birth control (laughs) um, and how it relates to overall health and fertility, you know, today with you, but also, you know, in the world on um, I've, I've had a lot of interesting responses to some of the posts that I put up regarding some of this stuff. And a lot of women hear this and get really concerned, you know, does this mean that it's permanent? Am I going to recover? And I think it's really important to know that, you know, the research supports the idea that it is temporary. There's, I, you know, I, I couldn't find anything in the research to indicate that any of these effects are permanent. Right. Your ovaries grow back. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, your ovarian reserve parameters normalize, your menstrual cycles normalize. Part of it, too, is that if they don't fully normalize, then that's, again, an indication of some underlying issue. If you have an endocrine disorder, like a thyroid dysfunction or something like that, then it's going to show up in your menstrual cycle. And so I think that it's it's helpful to know that our bodies are resilient and that the effects that we're talking about are temporary. And the reason that we're talking about them is because if you know that they're temporary, then you can organize your life better. So when you <laughs> when you were talking earlier about how, you know, it helps you to organize your calendar, like knowing, understanding the menstrual cycle helps us to plan things. So if I know I'm having my period, I'm probably not going to plan like a big, crazy week of being out all the time because I typically just want to relax. Knowing how birth control can affect fertility knowing that it's not permanent, but there is a temporary effect, knowing that it is helpful and important to consider coming off of the pill early to give your cycles a chance to rebound. One of the things I say in the book, which I don't know if it's controversial enough, but I do believe that as women, as we get into our late 20s, early 30s, you know, even if we're not trying to have babies 
today, if you are at some point in your future, if you're wanting to have kids, I think it's helpful to start having that conversation with yourself. Uh, you know, for a lot of women, when we're in our late teens, early 20s, the pill is really the best thing I mean, in the sense of convenience. I just remember being in my early 20s and was in school and lots of things were going on. I mean, I was able to chart my cycles and that's the primary method of birth control I'm using. But I guess what I'm implying is that there's different phases of your life where different types of birth control would be the best option. There are a lot of women for at certain periods of their life where hormonal birth control, that really feels like the best option for them. But as we get into our late 20s, early 30s, I think it's a good time to start really asking ourselves, what is the best way to manage our fertility? Because as we get older, you know, you might not have the luxury of time. You know, you might not have the luxury of giving yourself two years, but it doesn't mean your body doesn't need it. So it's just a conversation we need to be having about age and fertility. As we get older, our fertility does change. It's not as easy to conceive and carry a baby to term when we get into our late 30s and early 40s. It doesn't mean pregnancy is impossible. But one of the things I discovered in my research as well was that when we get to 35, the miscarriage rate goes up sharply. So by the time that we hit age 40, one out of every two pregnancies ends up in miscarriage. And that's part of the reason why there's a lower birth, you know, like there's, that's one part of the reason. So as women, we have to be able to have these conversations with ourselves. And of course, my recommendation is that if you want to have children in the future, it's worth starting to have that conversation with yourself. Is hormonal birth control the best way to manage your fertility once you get into your late 20s and early 30s? And if so, then it's a good time to consider that strategy of when you're planning to get pregnant, thinking about how you could organize your life such that you could come off of it at least a year and a half to two years before you even are ready to start trying. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that, you know, we share very similar ideas when it comes to the importance of preconception planning. And that's the basic is, is that your body, when it's healthy, it wants to conceive, right? And so how do you go about making sure that your body is healthy and you know tracking your cycle is a great way to show you what's out of line it will it will show you really quick in one season you know is it stress is it sleep is it hormonal and you know that's really what you do i mean you have two groups of thousands of women where you 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 teach one how to get pregnant by looking at their cycle and you treat you teach the other how not to get pregnant by looking at their cycle right <laughs> yeah no absolutely and I mean, one thing I, I recognize fertility awareness isn't for everybody in terms of using the method for as their primary birth control. But with that said, all women have the right to know how their cycles work. Because for some women, <laughs> you and myself, I'm sure, learning that you can only get pregnant on less, basically less than a week per cycle from a scientific perspective, for many of us, that causes us to question the whole establishment. Oh, yeah. I know <laughs> everything. So when I was, when I first discovered that, and I, I was really young, I was, I wasn't even 20 yet. And I remember learning that and thinking, okay, so if I'm only fertile for about a week or so, then why am I on the pill for 24 hours a day, seven days a week? That doesn't make sense. I mean, if I can figure out, you know, how to identify which days are, are fertile, and then I can organize myself accordingly. So if I can manage my fertility for that period of time, why would I have to be on the hormones all the time? So for, for some of us who kind of think that way, it just doesn't make sense. So again, this is about giving us options. As women, part of the reason that a lot of medical providers, even to this day, don't really talk about fertility awareness as a legitimate method, there's many reasons. One reason is because they're not really taught about it at all. Uh, second of all, it's conflated with the rhythm method. So many medical providers to this day don't 
uh, have not looked at the research on fertility awareness to identify that it is an effective method when used correctly. Uh, so there's research on the symptothermal method, meaning that we are looking at cervical mucus, cervical position, and uh, basal body temperature. So we're looking at these three markers. And the research shows that it's up to 99.4% effective when used correctly. And in the study, the participants were trained by certified educators in a specific method. So it wasn't just like random, it was very <laughs> specific. Um, and so with an efficacy as high essentially as uh, hormonal birth control, it's I wonder how practitioners are still saying to women that it doesn't work, it's not effective, and essentially conveying the message that they think it's too hard. It's almost like, don't worry your pretty little head about this, it's too complicated for you. Right, or you can't be trusted to possibly pay attention to your own body's signs enough to know what's happening. And that's so condescending, right? <laughs> well, and as someone who's been teaching women to chart their cycles for almost 20 years, I can say that within a cycle or two, women get it. And there's, you know, like I said, it's not every single woman isn't going to want this to be their primary method. That's why we have so many different methods of birth control. But for the women who resonate with fertility awareness and the women who hear this podcast and are thinking, well, yeah, I want to learn how to do this. This is amazing that I can prevent pregnancy without hormones to the same effectiveness as the pill. Are you kidding me? Like, where were you all my life? Like, so for, for those of us who fall into that category, yeah, my clients are super motivated. They love it. They're really motivated and they get it and they do it. And they're choosing to do it. So it's not like anyone's forcing them to do it. They're doing it because they want to. And so any woman who really wants to use this as their primary birth control method and is willing to put in some time and effort just to learn it, it's like any other skill. You learn to drive. You don't just get in a car and go. Like you have to actually take a lesson or something and learn. Uh, so for any woman who's willing to do that, you can do it. And it's effective. And throughout all throughout my career, essentially, I've never seen anything to the contrary that women are not capable of doing it. It doesn't even make sense to say that. So why do you think providers lump it in with the rhythm method and what makes it different? Well, I think that they lump it in with the rhythm method because they're not being taught about fertility awareness as a separate type of method. So for example, there might, if you were to break down birth control methods into categories, you know, um, you could say combined hormonal contraceptives, so contraceptives that use synthetic estrogen and progestin, you could say barrier methods, and then you would say, you know, fertility awareness-based methods right. <laughs> or rhythm methods. And so that's why, because it's like, in, in some instances, it's literally a category, and then they'll have one number at the bottom for the effectiveness for all of them. So basically, the rhythm method is an actual method um, of birth control, uh, but it's based on a mathematical calculation. It's based on an average. Basically, what you're doing is the idea behind it is, well, you know, if we can chart a couple cycles and we get a sense of how long they are and when ovulation is usually happening, then we can just take the average of that. And we can assume, which is not correct, that a woman will just always have the same cycle and then it's just repeat 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 so if we you know chart a couple get an average then we'll just know and we can just do that the one thing that all women have in common <laughs> is cycle fluctuations and so there have been a number of population studies where they look at you know thousands of women and they there was one particular study that i looked at where they had a, a quarter of a million menstrual cycles so thousands of women cycling over periods of time. So when you look at the actual data, it's quite clear that there are cycle fluctuations. Ovulation does not always happen on day 14, and women do not always have 28-day menstrual cycles. 
the average is about 29 days, but the actual menstrual cycle, healthy menstrual cycles range between 24 to 35 days. Fertility awareness is different from the rhythm method because instead of trying to take an average and predict when ovulation is going to happen and base your behaviors on random predictions that have no root in reality, fertility awareness is actually looking at your fertility on a day-to-day basis. So I teach my clients how to identify their fertile signs. We're primarily looking at cervical mucus because uh, when you have cervical mucus, those are your fertile days because uh, as you approach ovulation, because sperm can survive in cervical mucus for up to five days. Either way, uh, I could use another analogy, but um, and I will in a second, but basically with fertility awareness, every day at the end of the day, you're asking yourself, am I fertile or not today? And it's based on what you saw that day. So um, my mentor uses this great analogy, and it's like you could look at the weather forecast and try to predict when it's going to rain, or you could step outside and see if it's raining. Right. And so with fertility awareness, you're literally stepping outside and see if it's raining right now. And um, as a result of that, it's a completely different type of way of looking at the body. A lot of women who use fertility awareness still slip into what I call rhythm method thinking. So we still, because this is what we're taught, it's in our bones. So a lot of us still believe that our cycles are always going to be the same and I'm always going to ovulate on the same day or those types of things, which is not true. If you actually look at, if a woman's charting and you actually have an opportunity to look at a woman's charts over a year, you'll notice that even if her cycles are fairly regular, ovulation doesn't always happen on the same day. But when you know that and you know how fertility awareness works and you know that it's based on your observations, then you can recognize that you don't need to predict anything. You literally just have to get into the habit of checking your cycles. And at the end of each day, is today fertile or not based on what I saw today? What do you think about the wearable tech that does this with all the nine points of data? So something like certain bracelets that you can buy. So I think, I mean, there's lots of different kinds. So we've got wearable thermometers that are, you wear them to sleep and then they're taking an average sleep temperature and spitting it out for you. Uh, So I think all of these different tech devices, they're serving different purposes and they can be very helpful as long as, again, the women are aware of exactly what they're doing. So there's different wearable thermometers, and those can be really helpful. A lot of women who want to use fertility awareness find it difficult to take the temperature every day, and especially for women who have atypical schedules, maybe they're doing shift work or things like that, and they find it, you know, if you're, if sometimes you wake up at 4 p.m. after a night shift, and sometimes you wake up at 8 a.m., you know, it's harder to to organize that uh, temperature-wise. So in that respect, I think that as women, we just need to find the, what's going to work best for us. And those uh, wearable thermometers can be helpful in identifying ovulation. Uh, there's a lot of other devices, though. There's a lot of apps that you enter in your data, and it, you know, they, they're telling you when you're going to ovulate, and they're telling you when you're fertile, and they're telling you when you're going to get your period. And uh, I think that It's great just to have general information, but for women who are wanting to use fertility awareness as birth control, I'm not comfortable recommending any app to say, use it as your birth control, unless you are also going to learn about fertility awareness, at least to some degree, so that you have a sense of how to interpret your body signs. So any type of app or device that you're using, if you are legitimately trying to use this method as birth control, it's, in my opinion, of course, as an educator, I think, first, you need to learn and understand don't put all of your trust into an app. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. And there's also the other huge like elephant in the room about your data. Well, and then there's that. Yeah. A lot of these device companies or app companies, 
are literally selling your data. So you're, you know, they're free and it's like, oh, you can use this device and it's free and you can put in all your, you're putting how many times a month you're having sex, you're putting the supplements you're using, you're putting all kinds of personal information there that they can then use to, you know, sell to companies to market better to you. So yeah, it's it's problematic. I think for me as an educator and who's been doing this for so long, I'm also a bit biased because for me, I mean, one of the allures for me when I first started this method was it was something I could invest some time and money in learning once and it was a skill that I could have forever so when I learned to drive like I my parents paid for a driving course for me I paid that one time (laughs) I'm not still taking a driving class (laughs) but it worked out pretty well because I learned a lot in that driving class like 20 years ago And um, and I still know how to drive. <laughs> There's no updates that are necessary to that. No, I never needed a, a follow-up class. Not to say women never need a follow-up appointment or anything, but uh, if we invest that time and energy and, and sometimes money in learning this method one time, you can literally be using it for decades. And the, the great thing about it is you don't need to have a thermometer that costs 100 if you want one, that's great. I know a lot of women love the tech. And for some women, using the tech uh, is a way to get their partners involved. Because as soon as you buy a $100 thermometer, your partner's like, whoa, this is serious. So (laughs) whoa, this is like, what's going on? So for, you know, I've heard a lot. I mean, I've I've interacted with my community for years. So I I get, I, I feel like I understand a lot of the opinions. And the way I look at it is like whatever is going to help you. If it jazzes you to to get a, a great piece of tech, if it you know, because sometimes you need something to help you get excited and to um, encourage you. If you pay that much for a thermometer, you're going to take your temperature. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, however it works for you. But I think the key is to, in my opinion, because even the devices that are categorized as medical devices and have research behind them are not 100% because nothing's 100%. There are women who use the devices and get pregnant on the devices that, you know, on the day that the device told them that they were not fertile. And so the highest efficacy with regards to fertility awareness, the studies that show the highest efficacy were women who were taught the method by trained instructors who were using it correctly. So if you want the highest efficacy, because there's a lot of women out there who they really want to be able to rely on the method. They want to feel comfortable and they don't want to get pregnant. And so if that's you, then, you know, first and foremost, take some time to learn the method and to choose a specific method. So fertility awareness is not a method. There are under the umbrella of fertility awareness based methods. There are many different ways of charting. There are devices, you know, that are their own methods. There are different methods of charting. There's methods that are cervical mucus only, temperature only symptothermal, the combination of the two. There's devices that use fertility monitors that measure your estrogen levels to identify when you're in your fertile window. Like there's a multitude of different ways to do this. And there's not one right way. So first and foremost, choose a method, take some time to learn it, understand the physiology. Uh, You only have to learn it once. Uh, And once you do, you can use whatever you want. You can buy whatever device you want, use whatever app you want. But the first thing I think that is really important is to learn it. And the reason that I'm so passionate about that is because I want women to be successful. What happens is if you don't really learn it properly and you don't really know what you're doing and you're trying to use it as birth control, you, you know, you could get pregnant. And then if you do, then that would cause you to question the method and all of that, like all the fallout of that. 
And so, you know, I like to set women up for success because I know personally and professionally that this method can work. I've used it successfully (laughs) for uh, almost two decades and I've never, I was able to, you know, throughout, and I was young, I was like a baby. I was like (laughs) 18 years old. Um, I figured it out and I used it successfully in my early twenties up until my thirties. You know, I had two children in there, very planned, excessively planned. And um, outside of my two children, I've always used it for birth control successfully. So, you know, if you know what you're doing, if you are consistent in your observations and your charting, and if you understand the rules, you can use it successfully. But I, I maybe I'm biased as an educator, but I do recommend for women to consider taking a class or just taking, you know, investing in, in that just that one time initially in your learning process, you won't regret it and you'll have the skill forever. And then you can walk past those, you know, the birth, when you see the birth control commercials and things like that, you can almost be like, it's kind of like when I started using the Diva Cup instead of all the menstrual products. So I could walk past the menstrual cycle aisles and be like, hmm, I don't need your products. I don't need your bleach and dioxins. Thank you very much. (laughs) So by using fertility awareness, I kind of have that same, like, I don't need your synthetic birth control and blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't need your IUD in my uterus. I'm good. Thank you very much. So you can feel confident in that if if it resonates with you and if that's something that you really want to to pursue. I am right there with you. That's exactly how I keep my family the size that it is. And I think women are amazed when they are empowered when they figure out that they've had all this information there the whole time. It's just nobody told them. So where can someone find you if they want to learn from you? Well, you can find me on the Fertility Friday podcast. So just by searching Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast app. The book, The Fifth Vital Sign, is available on Amazon and it's available in paperback and ebook formats. Audio is coming soon. Yes. <laughs> uh, for the listeners that are intrigued by this conversation and want to learn more about the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, you can get the first chapter of the book for free over at thefifthvitalsignbook.com. And thank you so much for having me. We could have just continued to talk for forever. It was so much fun to chat with yes. you today. <laughs> yes, we are We are of the same cloth. Yeah, we could have talked for hours. I, I don't think our listeners, we would have lost them a little bit <laughs> after about an hour. But thank you for the amazing work that you do. And I know firsthand it is not easy to put yourself out there in such a delicate arena, but I also know that you do it because you want to help women and you want to help empower them to learn about their bodies and how they can stay healthy. So thank you truly from the bottom of my heart. Well, thank you. That's so sweet to say. To all our listeners, thank you for your time. It's your most valuable asset. If you've liked this show, please send it to a sister or a teenage woman in your life, especially because God knows I wish I would have heard this when I was a teenager. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to Fertile Minds Radio, hosted at www.ladyportions.com, where you'll find past episodes, show notes, and free meditations. If you've benefited from what you've heard, leave a comment or review so it makes it easier for others to find this valuable wisdom. Let's help elevate each other. Thanks for listening.